In light of COVID-19, Sport Calgary has compiled together a directory of webinars and digital events to help you stay connected in the Calgary sport community. Learn more at sportcalgary.ca. Hey kids, Rob Kerr with you. Thanks for stopping by. We're glad you're subscribing. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're enjoying this original Six Feet Conversation podcast. If you go back to the beginning, uh, we're a couple weeks, at three, four weeks in now. Uh, you remember I struggled with the name. I've learned it. I've figured it out. Original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Glad you're here. Glad you could make some time for us. Um, very special guest, full disclosure, friend of mine. Jeez, have you heard that before? Mm, maybe not. Uh, but also part of that disclosure is that this friend who basically really got to know in this conversation is our first non-Calgary resident. This is the first time we've gone outside of Calgary, really, for a guest. Um, having said that, his credentials as a pseudo-Calgarian are there. Uh, of that, I, I have no doubt. And if you stick around right to the end, I think you'll find out why. Really excited to spend some time with CBC Sports' Scott Russell. You know him as one of the voices, if not now the voice, of Olympic sport here in our country. Uh, 14, count them, 14 Olympic Games, 14 years on Hockey Night in Canada. He is a uh, author of three books. He is a professor. He teaches, or has taught Canadian sports history. Um, he is truly one of, I guess, the iconic names when it comes to um, the, the Olympic coverage in our country. And what's really cool about him is he's real genuine and he knows his stuff. From a broadcaster's point of view, I'm really ecstatic about this conversation because I get to pick the brain of a guy that can seamlessly slide from one sport to the next sport to the next sport to the next. It's amazing to me. Uh, my era, we had a little bit of that, but mostly we all started to specialize, but not Scott. Scott could be covering bobsleigh. He can move into basketball. He can host soccer. He's done play-by-play in, in all kinds of different sports. He is a really multitasker, really cool guy, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Also, we, we get into where the Olympics fit right now. Where, do, where does the Olympics, where do the Pan Am Games, where do the Commonwealth Games fit? And the nice thing about it, Scott's got some opinions. Pretty easy guy to get him to share. He has no problem sharing some of those opinions. So really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Just want to remind you that Calgary is home to world-class multi-sport facilities. Find the facility closest to you at sportcalgary.ca. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Scott Russell. Tell me about now. Tell me about life as i'm talking to, to scott russell how has it changed and what are you doing to stay sane well i'm like everybody else rob uh, everything is on hold right now um you know i'm so used to covering live sport and traveling the world to find that live sport and right now as i travel around which i don't there is no live sport uh which forces you to be a little bit retrospective. And uh, right now, what we're trying to build at CBC and on Road to the Olympic Games is retrospective sport, looking back at Rio 2016 and the tremendous success that there was by the Canadian women 
in the swimming pool or by Andre de Grasse uh, in track and field as he had that bromance with Usain <laughs> Bolt, um, or, or even looking back at uh, Pyeongchang 2018 and Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer in the figure skating, uh, the tremendous sliding success that Justin Cripps had along with the losers out of Calgary. Um, so right now, Rob, it's as we look ahead to Tokyo and we've got a date finally, uh, it's a year away or a year later than it was supposed to be, but we do have a date yeah. for those 2020 Olympics, which will be 2021 Olympics now. As we look ahead to those, we're kind of looking back on all the great stuff that's happened and, and counting our blessings. I don't want to bog down too much in the current. I, I do want to get into some storytelling and, and, and have a little bit of fun. But from your standpoint, Scott, when did this start, get on your radar? When did, because clearly we've gone through a very big story. When you cancel, pardon me, when you postpone an Olympics, that's a huge story. So when did you become aware that we were about to go so, through something like this? Well, you know, when it really uh, hit home and, and became a reality, because, uh, you know, when the COVID situation started, we started to hear people speculating, and it was wild speculation at the time, saying, I wonder if, I wonder if this could possibly affect the Olympics, because, you know, the Olympics were to occur in Asia, uh, the beginning of our awareness of the virus was from Asia. And so we thought, oh, I wonder if, if Tokyo is in the center of the storm, so to speak. But that kind of, that became, as I say, wild speculation. When it really started to hit home that the Olympics could be canceled or moved, hmm. uh, Rob, was, was when we were working towards the World Figure Skating Championships, which were be, to be held in Montreal yeah. uh, in late March. And as we got closer and closer, uh, and finally they pulled the plug on the World Figure Skating Championships, that's when I personally and, and my colleagues started to believe that they've got to do something with the Olympics because uh, – you know, so many of the athletes are from Asia, yep. are from uh, uh, those powerhouse nations in sport. And, and th at that point in time, it became very real when, when we decided we weren't going to have the major championship, which was the world figure skating. Yeah, I, I, I guess just the, the one last newsy type question is the significance, the thought that you had that Canada was the first country to say, whoa. Now, it didn't take long for everybody to fall behind, but for the, the significance of Canada taking the step to saying we're not going to go to, to Tokyo. I think that was hugely important, Rob. Uh, Canada, although a small country in terms of population, has a great deal of influence uh, at the table vis-a-vis uh, -vis the International Olympic Committee and, and has always been a leader in the Olympic and Paralympic movement. Um, and I think that uh, Tricia Smith, who is the president of the Canadian Olympic Committee, uh, is a tremendous leader. Um, and I, I believe that the Canadian Olympic movement has always been based on values first. Um, and and that's, that's important in the Olympic movement today because so many people see uh, the Olympics as all about business and money. I think Canadians have always been about values first. I think Tricia demonstrated that, and I think it was a bold, but it was a prudent move 
by the Canadian Olympic Committee to say, for the health of our athletes and for the health of humanity, it's important that we set an example and not attend the Olympics if they're to be held in the summer of 2020. And I I think that people fell in line with that thinking right away. You saw Australia come into line with that thinking. The United States came into line with that thinking very quickly. Uh, I think it was an important move and a wise move uh, by Canada and good on Tricia Smith and the Canadian Olympic Committee. I guess at the risk of of waving the flag a little bit, there is, I do from the outside have a sense that Canadians tend to to be leaders uh, when it comes within the Olympic movement. Uh, Dick Pound, I think of all of our athletes, Haley Wickenheiser, which she's, there, there seems to be that sense of, of camaraderie, but also responsibility with Canadian athletes and Canadian structure. And, you know, you mentioned Haley and you mentioned Dick Pound. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the people who, who I have a great deal of admiration for and who is a true leader in, um, uh, the Olympic movement internationally is an Albertan, and that's uh, Becky Scott. Right. You know, Becky was the leader of the Athletes Commission at the World Anti-Doping Agency, has been firm on uh, the anti-doping movement in sport. She's a person of conscience. Um, she's a person of great integrity, and uh, she, she's a tremendous leader in terms of the Olympic movement. So, yes, you're right. And I, I don't think it's waving the flag, Rob. I, th- I, I think it's it's just telling the story uh, and the real story that, that Canadians have been very strong leaders at the forefront of the Olympic movement and always stressing values first because the Olympics are unlike any other event. They're the only event, Rob, that attempts to bring people of every race, faith, gender orientation and ability and region into one place at one time to demonstrate what is humanly possible. I know that the cynics out there think that it's all about business, but really the Olympics have a value base and it's extremely important that we maintain that. Well, as you're aware, um, right here in our city, we went through this conversation a year and a half ago um, Scott, as someone who believes in those values, do you think the tide can turn or how do we turn the tide to get the general populace again to believe in what the Olympics stand for? The Olympic movement has to become sustainable. Um, it, it has to leave a positive legacy in every case as opposed to a legacy of, of debt and corruption which it's been uh, all too frequently characterized by in recent years. I mean, the example of Athens in 2004, uh, of Rio de Janeiro in in 2016, uh, of Sochi in 2014, you know, these these huge, wild expenditures, um, building new facilities uh, that cannot be sustained, um, impoverishing communities, for years going forward, as opposed to making those communities uh, more prosperous um, and and better communities. You know, I, I, like many other people, and I have to say this honestly, uh, Rob, was tremendously disappointed that uh, the people of Calgary uh, turned down uh, the possibility of the 2026 Olympic Winter Games. Um, And they did it, quite frankly, overwhelmingly overwhelmingly. 
by virtue of the plebiscite. I, I think those Olympics could potentially have been of, of great benefit to the people of Calgary and, and to the community, which is, is quite frankly, in a tough economic time. Um, I, I, I was disappointed by it. I think that the message didn't get across how important sport has been to that community and how important it could be to rebuilding the economy of Calgary going forward and of Alberta. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. I think, I think it will be in the future. I think Vancouver is going to consider another Olympic bid because the legacy there was tremendous. Let me throw this one at you, and this is strictly an opinion, you know, Scott, and it was one that I was beginning to form before I left the media, and that we are living in a very turbulent social time. Social media, the different movements, empowerment, uh, uh, finally, for some groups, that we are now beginning to see less of, uh, we'll, we'll do the greater good and more what's in it for me, which is a real base level, but I'll give you a hockey example. Coaches now talk about, you know, when 30 years ago, we used to tell a player to go through that wall and they'd go through that wall. Now you tell that player to go through that wall and he turns to you and goes, well, why should I? What's in it for me? I just wonder if that seeped into society a little bit. That We want to see how the sausage is made and then we don't want to eat the sausage. I I just felt like Calgary was at an interesting crossroads in where society is right now with all the information available to us. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that people are more aware now of what goes into sport at all levels. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it's the modern age. It's the information age. People are exposed to more information now than they have been at any point in time in our history. And I think that ultimately sport, like everything else, has to be transparent. And I think the other thing that's really important um, to say, Rob, in this in this context is, and we've always trumpeted this, you through hockey and through your journey in sport, me through my association with the Olympic Games and high-performance sport. We have always trumpeted the fact, almost blindly, that sport is good. Well, you know what? People have discovered through their exposure to all the information that's available to them that sometimes sport is not good for them, that the people who are leading sport haven't allowed it to be as good as it can be for the people who participate. And I think it's important. I think it's important that all of sport be seen to be something that adds to a person's life, makes a person's life better. Right. And if it doesn't, we got to change it. Well, but, but, and I don't wish to pick an argument with you, sir, but is it sport that, or is it people? Really, sport is good. It's the people that ruin it, right? It's, it's, you look at the Russian Federation. They're the guys that ruin it. It's not that all athletes are, are you know, cheaters. It, it, to mm-hmm. me, we got to get back to the virtue of sport and why sport is so important. One hundred percent. It's it's the people who are the stewards of sport. Yeah. That that need to understand that they are important 
in making sure that sport is not corrupted and is not seen to be a bad thing, but rather a good thing. You know, you know, and I always bring this out, Rob, and perhaps you've heard me say it before, but, you know, it, I don't think it's corny. Nelson Mandela, who was one of the great freedom fighters of the world, yep. and we all know how yep. important that man was. Right. He said, sport has the power to change the world. It speaks to young people in a language they understand. Sport laughs in the face of all forms of discrimination, and sport provides hope where once there was only despair. I believe that. Absolutely. And I believe that, and I believe that sport is an essential part of the narrative of humanity. And the people who run sport, who are the stewards of sport, have to stick to that ideal that it's 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 essential i'll give you one better uh my recent journey has been about the importance of leadership in sport and without getting political i think right now and in, in what we're going through it's real easy to see where we have leaders and where we have managers and i i i thought that it was really cool that they posted a picture of dr fauci in the united states as the captain of his university basketball team there was something there scott there was something yeah. there no, abs- absolutely, and and so many of of our good political leaders have been involved in sport in some way over yeah. the course of their lives. You know, I always point to the fact that uh, Roger Bannister, uh, who broke the four-minute mile uh, back in 1954, uh, you know, Roger Bannister was a neurologist and was educated at Oxford University, um, the, the greatest academic institution in the world. And uh, sport, he said, uh, gives us more pleasure and more meaning than anything else in our lives. And to me, to hear that from a person of that caliber is incredibly important. Do you see yourself as a traditionalist in sport? Are you quote unquote old school when it comes to your sport or... Is there room for adaptation and growth in the Olympics and, and other, uh, you know, Pan Am Commonwealth type games where we get together and we celebrate sport? And I guess this is a long way for me to get to what could we add? What should we be looking at maybe bringing into the fold here? That's a really interesting question because I am a traditionalist. Okay. And uh, I, I'll admit that freely. Um There is nothing, Rob, like being in a stadium with 100,000 people and seeing Usain Bolt running the 100 meters against Andre de Grasse to see who the world's fastest man is. There is nothing like being in an arena with 30,000 people, as there would be in Tokyo, to seeing... Uh, Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast in the world, walked the balance beam. And she's the only person competing in front of 30,000 people. There is nothing like that in the world. Uh, I do believe that, you know, one of the things that we have to work towards uh, on the Olympic front is to make sure that the games become gender equal that as many women as men compete, because 
What I'm after as a traditionalist yep. is is the great competition. It's it doesn't necessarily have to be a man competing. I I love to see a woman compete as well. Right. And so to see Shelly Ann Fraser Price win the women's 100 meters is spectacular and just as spectacular as to see Bolt win it. So uh, I have to say that I, I am a traditionalist. I, I love those big spectacle sports. I love to see a great swimming race. Right. It's fantastic. So uh, two things that come out of this. I'll stay on this track, but I want to double back on something. So rugby sevens we're okay with? Like, I mean, it's... Love, seemed... okay. love rugby sevens. Rugby sevens a hugely exciting game. Yeah. Um, but an adaptation... I... But a change, an, right? An a- adaptation, fast moving. Um, I first came into contact with Rugby Sevens uh, in uh, 1998 okay. at the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. That's where it made its debut on the Commonwealth level. And we were all going, holy crap, how <laughs> fast is this thing? I mean, you know, seven minute halves and uh, the thing moves like 90. It's it's. It's absolutely incredible. Lots of scoring. Uh, they don't scrum it up as much. And there's people flying around, Rob. It's, it's you know, I had a, an expression, sevens are wild. Yeah. That's, it was, it was just uh, tremendous to watch. So, yeah, I, I really like rugby sevens. There are some other sports I'm not so sure about. All right. And I think I'm going to bring it up because it's one that fascinates me. And I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, right in the middle on it. I'm not sure. But we're seeing, I believe, the Asian games have adapted it. What about the future of something like esports for Scott Russell? Could you see yourself covering esport athletes at an Olympics? It's an interesting question, and it came up at uh, one of our all-staff meetings at CBC Sports. And, uh, boy, Rob, I, I, I don't know what your listenership is, but uh, I'm going to come right out and say it, and, and I... I don't want to be branded by it, but I don't think esports should be in the Olympic Games. Um, I, I think I think sport is about physical exertion, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, uh, competition on a real field of play. Right. Um, and I I just I think that I, I I'm not sure that I buy esports at the Olympics. Um, it's 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 certainly um, we brought it up because right now esports is what is available to us. Right. It's it's the only kind of sport right now that is going on. I I don't disagree that it is in fact sport. It's yeah. competition. It's uh, it involves a certain amount of uh, uh, manual and physical dexterity. Uh, it certainly in, involves a, a cerebral element. Um, I don't see it as a physical competition on a real field of play. That's that's my opinion well, on it. And, and I, I appreciate it. I, to me, it's a great conversation to have. And I think we, especially nowadays, we shy away from these, these debates or these conversations because it seems like we isolate one side or the other, and it shouldn't be that way. I think you will remember at one point, did we not, have a conversation at the Olympic level about sport versus games, that um, things like darts, snooker, um, other you know pursuits that way that there's world championships for and, and, and get great television numbers. But we, did we not have to cross a bridge you know, back in the 90s or late 80s on something like that to the differentiation between a game and a sport? Yeah, I, 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 uh, 
think we are still having that kind of conversation because, you know, uh, what what do you do uh, at the Olympic level um, with something like water skiing? Yeah. You know, it's a motorized machine that right. is towing around a person uh, on skis. Do we, do we put water skiing? It's at the Pan American Games, mm-hmm. not yet in the Olympic Games. Um, you know, we're still having the discussion about equestrian sport and about horses and riders as equal athletes. Are we? Uh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, with the modern pentathlon, people always talk about the modern pentathlon. What are we going to do about it at the Olympic Games? It's it's antiquity, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's something that goes way back and it's very aristocratic. But uh, what do we do with that kind of sport? You know, the X Games, the X Games have built in sport like, uh, what, snowmobile racing and things like that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, like there's that conversation is going to go on forever. How how high up does that go, Scott? Is that just a media conversation? Is that just you know, held in little groups or at the highest levels? Or is there, a, for lack of a better term, a committee at the Olympic level that, that is constantly churning through this kind of information and having these, these talks? Absolutely. There's, there is a committee uh, at the IOC which deals with uh, new sports at the Olympics, what's to be included on the program. And every time they have a meeting of the executive council, they discuss applications for new sport at the Olympics. And, you know, at these games uh, coming up in Tokyo, which will now be in the summer of 2021, we're going to get surfing, skateboarding, karate, uh, sport climbing. These are all new sports that will come onto the Olympic program. And each and every time we have an Olympic quadrennial, there will be new sports admitted to the games and some sports will drop off. You know, there's another Calgary connection right there. Yeah. Car- Carol Wynn, who lives in Calgary, the Olympic champion in wrestling, um, for a long time was on the International Wrestling Federation. And there was a, a threat that the IOC would drop wrestling from the Olympic program because it was seen to be, you know, not viewer friendly. It was too antiquated. Uh, a combat sport that had had another time and maybe it was time that we moved on. And Carol Carol fought very hard to keep wrestling on the Olympic program and it remains there to this day and I'm happy that it does. And of course, we have a a great Olympic champion in Erica Weeb, who I know you've had on your show. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. We keep coming back to Canadians, right? Keep coming back to Canadians that are (laughs) making a difference because, you know, we've focused mostly on the summer, but you've covered the winter. We're not that far removed from somewhat of a threat that women's hockey might go away because of, you know, issues. And again, Haley and Cassie and everybody standing up and defending. Um, It's there's a lot of moving pieces, Scott. There's a lot of things going on. Absolutely, there is. And, uh, you know, you talk about women's hockey, and, and for so long, the knock against women ho- uh, women's hockey has been, although it's tremendously competitive when you get to Canada and the United States and, and you know, to a certain extent, I don't know, Sweden or, or, or uh, Finland, yeah. um, once you get beyond those countries, is the competitive depth high enough to maintain status on the Olympic program? 
And I, I, I think, you know, Haley and, and Cassie and others in the United States, Cami Granato, yeah. uh, have done great work in order to keep it on the program because it is tremendously exciting and it's important for the gender equity basis of the Olympics going forward. Um, but, you know, you have to constantly build competitive depth in a sport to have it stay on the greatest on the program of the greatest international event of all what about having the best athletes there your vision of what we saw in 2018 with without the nhl players coming for that one particular sport and we went back to you know kind of the best of everybody else how important is it that the olympics have the top athletes in all sport i think it's tremendously important I think that the NHL, by not being there, um, did a disservice to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Olympics did a disservice uh, to itself uh, by not being able to find a way to make an arrangement with the NHL to make it um, achievable to have the NHL there. Um, I, th I think it's so important to have the best athletes at the Olympic Games. Um, you know, that this applies to basketball. Um, and I think this is one of the real concerns now that uh, these games have been pushed back a year. Um, we were going to have the best basketball players in Tokyo 2020. Huge audiences uh, for the sport. Uh, but now that the NBA season has been completely disrupted, will they want to, you know, disrupt their program to a certain extent again by having their best players try to get to the Olympic Games? And I think that's particularly going to come into play with the Canadian men's team. Um, will, will all of those great players still want to be on that team when it tries to get qualified? What do you think about modified age groups, too? Because soccer, men's soccer side uses under 23, correct? Men's soccer side uses under 23. Canada, by the way, the Canadian men still have a chance yep. uh, to get qualified for the games. It's a long shot. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's tough. That's tough because if you want, you know, but this is this is where soccer is a particular example where the World Cup, is so big. Yeah. FIFA World Cup is so big that it is it it's a direct competitor uh, with the Olympic Games and and you know the FIFA World Cup is arguably the second biggest event in the world next to the Olympics and they do not want to have their best players uh, playing at you know making the Olympics supersede the FIFA World Cup. You, in an answer before, you, you kind of touched on 2016 and, and how incredible the Canadian women were and kind of carried the, the story for us as a nation. And it got me thinking about, you know, we're, we, we continue to work through equality, especially in professional sports, and continue to work through the broadcast components of that. The Olympics always seemed to be the kind of the harbinger of things to come, that we had that kind of equality before other broadcast platforms, other sports did. Um, for me, I, just a personal reflection, the first athlete I ever remember is Nadia Kamenich, right? Um, yeah. Way back, that's 76, right? And yes. So it always seemed to me that that was that one place. Is that a, I don't know, a kind of a Disney version of, of the Olympics and, and gender equality? Or ha has the Olympics been at least a little bit ahead of the curve? 
I think the Olympics has been ahead of the curve. You know, people will often criticize the Olympics for not moving fast enough. Yeah. But but the reality of it is that the Olympics have moved faster than anybody else. I mean, sport at the professional level has always been completely segregated. Yes. Completely segregated. Absolutely. I mean, there are the the top professional leagues in the world, bar none, have always been men's leagues. Yeah. I mean, there's there's just no arguing that. Yeah. The people pay to come and see the best hockey players in the world who happen to be men. They don't come to pay to see women play hockey or haven't in the past. Maybe they are increasingly. But at the Olympic Games, listen, um, you know, at the first Olympics in in, the first modern Olympics in 1896 in Athens, Greece, there were no women. I mean, there were there were no it was all men. Right. And then we did we didn't get women competing in the marathon until 1984 Los Angeles when Joan Benoit Samuelson won the race. 1984. I mean, and and remember, you know, people who ran the Olympics thought that running distance for women would be hazardous to their health and that perhaps their uterus would fall out, Rob. I mean, such was the the lunacy of the whole. Absolutely, yeah and the ignorance of the whole situation. So women have had to fight very hard to be seen as high performance athletes. Only now are we getting to a point where we're gender equal at the games. Tokyo will be very close. You know, it'll be 49% women, 51% men. Yeah. And we're very, very close, but boy, it's taken a long time. Just a, a thought on international competition, and then I want to switch gears on you. We talked all about the Olympics. Can you just, from your perspective, the importance of Commonwealth Games, Pan Am Games? I mean, individual world championships are, are one thing, but I'm thinking of kind of those sub versions of, you know, large gatherings with multiple sport and the importance. They still have importance, Scott? They still do have an importance, and, and I'll, uh, I'll be an advocate for that. You know, not everybody is an Olympian right away. In order to become an Olympian, um, I would say, not having been one myself, but knowing <laughs> Olympians, you you have to build uh, a sort of a basis, uh, an awareness of what it takes to compete at the international level at a huge event. That's why, to me... Canada, again, is a leader. The Canada Games have been around since our confederation in 1967. And the Canada Games are a big, multi-sport event. And it means something to be a part of Team Alberta or Team Saskatchewan or Team Prince Edward Island and to compete at that level on a big stage. The same thing goes with the Commonwealth Games so that athletes from Canada compete against the best that England has to offer, or Scotland, or Australia. Australia, the Commonwealth Games, are huge and remain so to these days. Um, So that's important, to get that major international competition. And the Pan American Games, same thing goes there. You You can't expect to compete on the biggest stage of all if you haven't competed on some of the smaller stages. And that applies... Listen, that applies to the NHL. You you got to compete 
at the in the WHL before you can compete in the NHL. Yeah. And and I, that's why I think the Commonwealth Games, Pan American Games, and the Youth Olympic Games, okay. which we're seeing coming into uh, the forefront now, they're all important to build towards the grandest spectacle of all, which is the Olympics. Are they in danger? Are they in trouble? Are they? Do we worry about those? You know, considering some of the things we were talking about. Do we worry about the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, and the Pan Am Games. I mean, are, are they still economically viable? Is there still a way to do them moving forward? Yeah, I think there is a way to do them. But, uh, you know, all games require funding. All athletes require funding in order to travel to these major international events. And that funding is getting harder and harder to come by. Yep. I know the Commonwealth Games Association in Canada uh, is struggling. Um <laughs> Because we as Canadians, you know, are questioning our ties to the Commonwealth as a whole and, and yep. how important those ties are. So going forward, there are going to be some challenges for those games, but I think they have value. Uh, by the way, uh, want the latest in Sport Calgary updates in one place? Sign up for Sport Calgary's newsletter for the latest monthly updates sent straight to your inbox. Sign up at sportcalgary.ca with Scott Russell from CBC Sports. I know where you got to, but I don't know where you came from. Um, tell me a little bit about where the, the Scott Russell sports journey started. Were you a, a, an avid participant as a youth? I was. I was a hockey player who had all kinds of heart and not a ton of skill. Uh, I was a, uh, a high school basketball player, Rob, uh, who played at the center position, but I'm six foot three, and although I was able to hold my own at high school at Victoria Park Secondary School in Don Mills, Ontario, and uh, put in a few points. I was the most valuable player on my team. We got to the regional championships, and then I got to what was then the University of Western Ontario as a six-foot-three center, tried out for the Mustangs. They tried to turn me into a ball-handling guard. I failed miserably at that. And my high-performance athletic career at that point in time, Rob, was over, done, <laughs> never to be discussed again. But it was at that point in time when, uh, you know, I became fascinated by uh, intercollegiate sports uh, at the university. At the time that I attended uh, uh, Western, uh, their football program was huge. Uh, the Heck Crichton Trophy winner uh, was a guy by the name of Jamie Bone, uh, who played for the Western Mustangs. He led them to the national championship. Darwin Samodiak was the great coach of the Mustangs. Uh, and, uh, boy, to go to a game at J.W. Uh, Little Stadium uh, and to see them play, it was a packed house. There'd be 15,000 in the stadium and they, you know, kicked the crap out of the Queens Golden Gales or the Laurier Hawks or the York Yeoman at the time. I'm who cares? All the way right to the national championship, and uh, they were a great football team. And I became fascinated by that, Rob. And uh, to me, that that was my entry in, into sports uh, journalism, sports broadcasting. I went away uh, and became a teacher. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I went to Althouse College at Western. Uh, and became a high school teacher. I uh, taught at West Hill Secondary School in Owen Sound, Ontario, uh, for three years. Uh, I coached uh, history, geography, and consumer education. Uh, 
and I coached the volleyball and basketball teams there. Uh, we went to a Central Western Ontario final with the women's basketball team. We ended up losing to a team from Paris, Ontario, but I loved coaching. I didn't love uh, disciplining children yeah. and and having having kids who didn't want to be in class. And I don't know, I was a young guy and, and I thought, man, I don't know if I can do this over the long haul. And uh, I became very interested in writing and uh, would write op-ed pieces for the Owen Sound Sun Times. And it was on politics, whatever. Oh, really? Matter. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, uh, I ended up doing that and then became aware of a, uh, the journalism program, the Master's in Journalism program at Western. Uh, and the dean was a guy by the name of Peter Deborah, who had been the anchor at Global News. And I, I knew who Peter Deborah was. I applied for the program, unbelievably got in, because they wanted people in the program who had some life experience. And because I had been a teacher and a coach, yep. I got in. Um, small program, 40 people. Only, only person in the program who is interested in sports in any way. And, um, and th there you go. I, I got interested in sports broadcasting and and that was my focus when I went through Western so you weren't one of us one one of us you weren't a broadcast nerd like me you weren't the transistor under the pillow after you were supposed to go to bed searching for whatever you could find on the am skips or anything like that or, or now, don't get me don't get me wrong uh, wrong Rob I mean listen I go way back I'm older than you my yeah, friend. a little bit and yeah. I, I I go I go way back and I did have the transistor okay. under my pillow, okay. and I was listening to Foster Hewitt yep. call the Leafs on CKFH, and when they were in Chicago playing on a Sunday night, you know, the second half of a home-and-home, home, my God, Foster made Chicago sound like, you know, some mystical, magical place where gangsters live. Yeah. I mean, it was fantastic, right? So, yes, I was that kind of nerd about about that kind of cool. thing but i never thought it would be my life right right but uh what what attracted me was when i was in the journalism program at at western was that that sport could be such a fantastic story you know we were taught as journalists that the most important thing was the story mm. and you know i love sport as as a, a narrative because built in it had all of this beautiful color and you know the, the the green grass of the football turf and and the football flying through the air and the built-in heroes and villains of the narrative became <laughs> incredibly important and then you know extending that and, and to see to see all that majesty and grandeur of the Olympics and how sport was built around that I mean that's that's where I fell in love with the nature of of journalism and how it could be related to sport so it's safe to say that the difficulty with a conversation like this is we can't look at the business as it is today we have to look at the business as the way it was yeah. could there have been a better place for a person like you than CBC sport 
because you got an opportunity at Hockey Night, but you also got to do Olympics. 14 years at Hockey Night in Canada and 14 Olympics. Like, that's a that's pretty cool, I would say. It, absolutely. And it, it, it was, you know, when I... Uh, when I first went with the CBC in 1985 in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, <laughs> that was my first posting with the CBC. I remember my dad, I was part of the CBC summer training program, and my dad, uh, I went to him and I said, Dad, you know, for the, for the summer posting, they're going to allow us to go to any CBC location in the country with the exception of Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa, Calgary, all the big stations, yeah. right? Yeah. So I said, where do I go? And he said, pick the smallest place. Go to Charlottetown. And I said, Charlottetown? I, I thought Charlottetown had like 60,000 people because it was a provincial capital. Rob, at that time, <laughs> Charlottetown had 15,000 people in it. And I flew over you know, the airport when I was landing in a Dash 8 coming from Halifax when I first arrived, the airport was like a green garden shed. <laughs> I got in the cab and the guy says, uh, where are you going, boy? And I said, I'm going to the CBC in Charlottetown. He says, oh, that'll cost you a lot of money. I said, how much? He says, going to be a buck fifty. <laughs> so I got there and it, you know, it was a tremendous experience. And I, I never thought when I went there, that uh, I would be able to go to the Olympic Games or that I could work on Hockey Night in Canada. Wow, I never believed that. I just, I wanted to be a local sports reporter, which I got a chance to do, had a ton of fun. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it was just a great experience to do that. So what was a, a week in the life of a sports reporter in Charlottetown in 1985? Well, I'll tell you right now. The most important thing was that you had to attend the harness racing at the Charlottetown Driving Park because the guy that was calling uh, the racing was a guy by the name of Kevin Boomer Gallant, and he was unbelievable. And those horses came from all over the Maritimes to race, and they had a huge race every summer called the Gold Cup and Saucer. And I'll never forget covering that my first summer in PEI, and we were doing a documentary on that, and uh, a little horse from Prince Edward Island called Rev Your Engine, driven by Phil Pinckney, came from way back on the backstretch <laughs> to beat Marcel Barrio and Angel Shadow, who were from the big city, which happened to be Moncton, New Brunswick, <laughs> and it was a fantastic race. And uh, so we covered the driving, you know, the, the racing at the Charlottetown Driving Park. We covered the stock car racing on the dirt track at Oyster Bed Bridge. That was fantastic. And then in the winter, we would cover, of course, the Island Junior Hockey League and the Summerside Western Capitals as they take on the Charlottetown Abbeys or the Eastern Kings Huskies, you know. It was fantastic. You covered anything and everything when you were the sports guy in PEI. Which was uh, which was first for you, Scott? Was it your first Olympics, or did you get to Hockey Night in Canada first? Uh, I got to my first Olympics first, Seoul, uh, South Korea, nineteen eighty-eight, um, and uh, so you missed Calgary. I missed Calgary. We. 
CTV had the rights right. to Calgary. That's right, yeah. But CBC, they made an arrangement with CBC where we purchased a part of the programming and we put on at CBC an hour-long program every night in prime time. Brian Williams was there, Don Whitman, Teddy Reynolds. Yeah. You know, all the big guys were yeah. there. Um, but I missed those. But I was named to do uh, Soul in 1988, and I did the play-by-play for tennis, and I did the play-by-play for wrestling. And I'll never forget those games, Rob, because uh, in 1988, that's when tennis came back to the Olympic program, Mm -hmm. and Steffi Graf won the tennis gold medal, the Golden Grand Slam, as they called it. And to see her play tennis was absolutely fabulous and i remember also uh attending a boxing match when lennox lewis won the gold medal in the heavyweight division and being up close at a boxing match at the olympic games wow you talk about gladiatorial sport incredible so a little inside baseball had you done any tennis play-by-play or wrestling play-by-play before the olympics Absolutely not. Um, and uh, it, it was it was pretty interesting, let me tell you. Um, it, 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 you know, you had to, obviously, you had to get your feet wet. But also there was a huge intimidation factor because sitting beside me in the booth uh, at the tennis center in, in Seoul was uh, Bud Collins of uh, NBC. Wow. And, wow. <laughs> And I'm looking across there and, you know, one of the legends of, of commentary of all time, Bud Collins. And, uh, wow, it was it was something. So how did you something. how did you prepare? Because for me now, you could jump on YouTube. You could watch a whole bunch of people. You can go on the Internet. But back in 1988, how did you prepare to do those two things? Well, you, a lot of you, you remember that my colleagues at the time were some of the great broadcasters Absolutely. In, the, in the history of our country. Yep, for sure. So my, my colleagues at the time were Don Whitman, Brian Williams, Ted Reynolds, uh, Terry Leibel, yep. uh, you know, one of the, yep. the first female great broadcaster in this country. All of those people, Steve Armitage, all of those people, and I have to say this without reservation. They were incredibly generous with their time. And when a young person asked them, how do I do this? They were more than giving oh, cool. with their advice and, and how to approach the whole thing. And uh, I have to say that was that was one of the great gifts uh, for a young person beginning their career. My guess, and it's just a guess, but my experience would be the probably the most important thing in all of that was where to talk and where not to talk, where to lay out, where not to lay out, right? Absolutely, because as each of those people would have said to me, and I'm, I'm sure they did, that the most important thing in all of this is not you, but the sport itself, and let the sport tell the story. The, the action will give the great narrative it, it it will be what compels people what at that time with that list of talent was there a quote-unquote cbc way of doing it 
Was there a style to the way that CBC presented and wanted from its on-air people? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was uh, most importantly to to uh, be a neutral person, um, to be the voice of, of the sport and not of a particular player, to not play favorites. But I, I would also think to be to be dignified, to be, uh, you know, sort of to set the example and to, to be the standard, if, if you will. Um, this remember, you know, is always made clear to us that as as a CBC broadcaster of sport, you were broadcasting to the entire country, to the the national audience. And when you were an Olympic broadcaster, you were representing Canada internationally, just as the athletes were. Mm-hmm. You you were representing Canada as the public broadcaster, the Canadian broadcaster, and that was that was tremendously important. And you know, it may sound kind of corny, but uh, it 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 gave you a sense of of pride. It gave you a sense of you had to live up to something. Yeah. And I, th- I think it was, it was really important to do that. How, how much of that is still with you today? And I'll ask it this way. How, how often do the little hairs in the back of your neck go up when you're listening to another broadcast or a professional team and you hear some kind of that over-the-top homerism, jingleistic stuff that we get now in, in broadcasting? Yeah, it, it, it's something that obviously rankles. It washes off a little bit now yeah. because there is, there's so much out there. When I, when I first went with the CBC, when I first went to the Olympic Games, Rob, there, there wasn't nearly as much on the air as there is now. Yeah. Now everything, now everything yeah. is broadcast in, in one way or another on one platform or another. So it, it's changed. And so I've come to be more accepting of it but I know that I, I still value the way we do things. And, and don't get me wrong, there are tremendous broadcasters on, on other yep. sources as well. And I, I don't mind naming them right now. I've had the great pleasure to work over the course of my career with uh, Chris Cuthbert, yep. with Jim Hewson. Yep. Uh, with all of those people, with Glenn Souter, uh, who, who does football on TSN. And I don't want to go and, and, and name too many other people, but I have a tremendous respect for so many people uh, in, in our industry. We, we, we have a lot of talent in our industry. We do, but I, I do, and as someone who could be, you know, considered guilty of the the charges that we're talking about being a little bit too much of a homer there is something that i appreciate about that era i appreciate about that style and i think quite honestly we're missing i really do i not not yourself i mean you still do it but i i just i'm thinking more of our friends you know south of the border that we see more of than anybody else i i just there was something about that person who showed up did the broadcast and then i mean doc emmerich's that way let's be perfectly honest there are some good guys out there Oh, absolutely. But yeah. you get into some of the hometown broadcasts in the NFL or Major League Baseball, and, you know, there's too many Hawk Harrelsons for my liking nowadays. Yeah, right. I agree. You know, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell me about getting to Hockey Night in Canada. 
What, what do you remember about that? Uh, I was working in Montreal, and uh, that's where I went after Charlottetown. And uh, it was, uh, I, I think I, I had been to the Olympics, and Ron Harrison uh, Sr., mm. who is the executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, uh, it was run by, uh, Rob, as you know, uh, Hockey Night in Canada was run by Molestar yeah. at that point in time. Uh, Ron Harrison had seen me and some of my work, and Lawrence Kimber, who is uh, an executive producer at CBC Sports, had sort of recommended, you might want to have a look at this guy. Um, he might be someone who is valuable to you. At that point in time, on the Montreal broadcasts, Dick Irvin was running up and down uh, between the play-by-play booth <laughs> and hosting duties. Okay, yeah, so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Dick was doing both things on a national broadcast. Yeah, so they needed somebody who could be the the ringside host for the Canadians games, and so they they gave me an audition. Um, that worked out well. I did the audition with Steve Shutt, um, who, who was at that time was the, the color person, um, uh, for the Canadians broadcasts. Um, my first game was Oilers hosting Vancouver Canucks in 1989. Um, and I think that, uh, Gretzky was gone by then. But Messier was still with the, sure. the Oilers. Yep. And um, Larry Isaac was the producer. I don't know if you love, know Larry. Love Larry. Worked with Larry for three <laughs> years. Love Larry. Love Larry. Anyway, so listen. Here's how it goes. I go to Edmonton uh, to do the game. And uh, we have the morning meeting. And there's the script that Larry's put out. And it says, uh, Scott Russell opens show Zamboni. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second. And I'm not saying this because I think calling that game, Bob Cole was calling the game and Harry Neal oh. was the uh, was the <laughs> color commentator. So I don't, you know, these are legends. I don't want to say anything. But I'm thinking to myself, I've got to open my first game on Hockey Night in Canada while riding around <laughs> on the Zamboni. So we go through the whole meeting, and uh, I go up to Larry after and sheepishly say, Larry, it says here, I open the show on the Zamboni. And he goes, no, 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 no. We just, that's a, we use that to say that's where the Zamboni goes onto the ice. That's where you'll be standing in that, you know, runway where uh, at the opening of the show. And, you know, I heave a sigh of relief. But I can't tell you, Rob, what it's like, you know, to be there when they're cueing you five, four, three, two, one. You're on live, yeah. Hockey Night in Canada, coast to coast, yeah. and you know, you you have the impression that everybody, all sixteen thousand five in the Northlands Coliseum at the time, are watching you. Yeah. Nobody's watching you, but you think they are. Oh, for sure. And I, it's the most intimidating experience of my life. And and I want our listeners to know, Scott's not talking about doing the second half of the doubleheader. That's the game. 
That's the one game. That's only game that Hockey Night Canada did. That's right. right. That's right. The only game. That's yeah. the only game that we're doing is that game <laughs> in Edmonton that night. And the Canucks and Trevor Linden are coming on the ice. And it's just going wild. And, you know, there's a lot of noise in the stadium. You can't hear yourself think. And they're counting you down. And honestly, Rob, when they say go, you're about to crap your pants. I mean, it's 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 <laughs> yeah. that. No, I, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Two more on this particular subject. And I mentioned it. How much, because you taught sports history, correct? You taught yeah. you taught sports history, so you're the perfect guy to ask this question. How much did professional sport media sports media change in our country when CBC went to the doubleheader? Because that would have been about the time that Toronto w- would have been pretty close to getting the Fan Five Ninety, the first all sports radio station. There would yep. have been more. I think there was dabbling in sports newspapers or sports specific publications and stuff like that how much did media sport media change with that one you know significant step exploded exploded uh with the double header uh the fan 590 uh then then came the team uh which was uh, yeah. you know across various locations in the country uh it became much more competitive um and you know it Growing up, watching Hockey Night in Canada um, before the doubleheader, I mean, you so rarely saw, if you were living in the East, you so rarely saw the Edmonton Oilers or the Vancouver Canucks. It it was a rare thing to see them. Now we receive them every Saturday night, seeing one of the Western teams. And and the, the juggling that went around and the explosion and the exposure of hockey to every part of the country from every part of the country was huge. And um, I think things really took off. I think sports radio became uh, huge at that point in time. I remember, you know, I'd get called ad nauseum um, during the week from the Fan 590 or from the team in Montreal, wherever they were, yep. to, to do midweek sort of, yeah. updates on what was going on with the West, because I was going out to the West a lot, right? Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, we became, we, we talked about hockey all day, every day, once we got to the doubleheaders. Right. It was the epicenter. It was the epicenter. Yeah. So where did you, Scott, ever have to make a personal decision? Because it's going to lead me to where I want to go next with you, but did you ever have to make a decision I got to focus on hockey. I'm going to, I'm going to stay in hockey. I'm going to, you know, maybe go to a local broadcast. Did that decision ever come across your plate? Yeah, there was a time. uh, Oh, you know, I can't even remember the exact date of it, but I'm going to say it was around 1998, 99. When I, I could have gone to the Toronto Maple Leafs. And 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 been the host of the Toronto Maple Leafs telecast, Leaf TV. Yep. Um, and uh, we got into pretty deep discussions about it, and you know, to the point of could I could I still do the Olympic Games if I went to Leaf TV and and became the host of the Leaf broadcasts? And um, 
we we got down to a discussion with our head of sports at the time, Alan Clark, um, and he said, I, I don't want you to go do that. I, yeah. Your passion is the Olympics. I, I want you to focus on that. And you can continue to do Hockey Night in Canada, but we want you to, you know, ultimately be focused on the Olympics. So I, I had to make the choice at that point in time. And in retrospect, I'm, I'm glad I made the choice. I did. Um, it would have been wonderful to, to work with the, I mean, the Leafs were great at the time. It was fun to work with the Leafs at that time. Um, but, uh, I'm glad I made the choice. I did. And that's kind of where I want to go with you. I want to talk a little bit about Calgary in a second, but I, I do want to talk about in this day and age, what you are. Um, take this for what it's worth, but I think you, Arash Madani, Terry Jones, there's a handful of you that need to be wrapped in bubble wrapped and protected um, because we live in this very uh, specific, um, you know, segmented world now. And I find the voices that can talk about multi-sports, that can cross barriers, that can are few and far between. And I, th- I personally, this is an opinion, Scott, that's all it is. I, I, I think we're poorer for it. I think back to when you got into the business, there were lots of reporters at newspapers that covered everything. There was lots of broadcasters that could do everything. Do you, are you worried about this? Are you, you know, you're a young guy in my opinion, but do you feel like you're the last of a, a kind of a broadcast breed here that, that can pop from one sport to another? Well, I'm, I'm, thank you for saying that. And, and I appreciate you saying that, Rob. And I, I do pride myself on that, as I'm sure Arash does, yeah. and I've known Terry Jones <laughs> for a long time, and right? and I, I, you know, I, I and I, I think about the late Randy Starkman, yeah, um, and how much he uh, was able to take what he knew about sport and and cross so many lines. He covered hockey, covered baseball, but he also, you know, was was the the standard bearer for covering Olympic style sport. Um, and I, I have to say this quite honestly, I believe there are others that are, are out there and, and younger than I that, uh, are, are still doing this kind of thing. And Good. I'm going to, I'm going to bring a, a person's name up, Andy Petrello, yep. who's my co-host okay. on road to the Olympic games. Let me tell you, she, she is so adept at covering hockey, uh, soccer, and Olympic sport, she she can do a lot of things and is tremendously talented. There's one person for you right there that I, I think is uh, there are others like her who are out there that that still do this kind of thing. I, and I think it's important that we do. I do, too. I, I, I worry because we give people exact, you know. Democracy is a great thing, but the problem with democracy is that we get to, to pick and choose and other things die. Uh, and, and I I just, I don't know, maybe it's the old man and me yelling at the clouds, but, you know, when we were growing up, the most important people in the world were the boxing heavyweight champion, the you know, the, the Kentucky Derby winner, the 100-meter uh, meter champion. There seemed to be all of that. There seemed to be a culture to the world of sport. And, and I worry that now fans grow up and, well, I'm just a hockey fan. That's all I want. I'm just a fantasy football guy. I'm just a baseball guy. And I, I think there's something to be said about being able to seamlessly go from one to the next to the next. And in your case, being able to go, again, 
nothing has changed. We have this four-year attention span, right? Like, hey, the Olympics are here. And I, you go to the sports bar, and we're all diving experts. He didn't hold the tuck. And, oh, man, there was too much water there. And then pff, gone for three years and 11 months, right? And it's, that, that bothers me. I don't want to lose your type of skill. No, and, and to give you an example, and I think it's an important one, I, I will tell you that I was assigned to um, be one of the hosts, well, the main host of the FIFA World Cup of Soccer in 2010. And what I knew about that kind of soccer or football, as they call it, you could put on the head of a pin, Rob, at that <laughs> point in time. But once I was exposed to it, I went to South Africa uh, in advance of the tournament, and then once we got into the tournament and I worked with people like Craig Forrest and Jason DeVos and uh, and Nigel Reed and, and all of these people, what a spectacle that level of soccer is. Yeah. It's incredible. And I think you're right. I think I think as fans of sport and people who tell stories about sport, we have we have to understand and convey that it's not just this specialized sport that's really important. There's so much of a sense of wonder to be found in so many different things yeah. about sport. And I think that's that's tremendously important, and it's what fascinates me about sport. And you, you use the right word, storytelling. If I, if I have one complaint about modern sports right now, it's too much about opinion. It's too much about this is what I think. Tell me a story. And I, yeah. I think that's what the Olympics are so good is there's able you have a room and, and a, a runway to tell some fascinating stories. Yes. Right. Exactly. Story is story is the most important thing. Our executive producer, Chris Irwin at the Olympics, always begins every one of our Olympic summits prior to the games where we get everybody together in order to prepare and look ahead to the games that we're about to broadcast he says, I have one rule and one rule only. And that is when we get to the games, your first priority is this. And it's what all Canadians are asking of you. Take me somewhere and tell me a story. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's about. Um, I want to wrap up, but the problem with wrapping up is I got so many other things I want to ask you. No, the problem with wrapping up is the Calgary-based podcast. So I have to ask you a couple of Calgary things. One, have you ever been white-hatted? I have been white-hatted. Okay, perfect. I have been white-hatted. Okay, perfect. Yeah. That, that's great. You qualify. Yeah. You're good. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Where, where has Calgary fit for you along the way? Where, what, what, what memories do you have about, you know, COP or Katrina or, you know, competitions here in Calgary? Calgary, to my way of thinking, and throughout, throughout my career, and, you know, having watched, I didn't broadcast the 1988 games, but I watched them and was fascinated by them. To my way of thinking, and I, I know a lot of people in Vancouver will not agree with me, but I think the 1988 Olympic Winter Games in Calgary, Alberta, were the greatest Olympic Winter Games of all time. The first truly big city winter games the greatest characters katarina vet yeah. alberto la bomba tomba the jamaican bobsled team gaitan boucher at that beautiful olympic oval his final races 
I mean, there were so many wonderful characters in Calgary, and what a fantastic games they were. And every year that I continued along my Olympic journey, the place that I visited most was Calgary, because that's where the Olympics were in this country. Canada Olympic Park. That's where the bobsleigh run was. I went to Lake Louise mm. every year to cover the alpine skiing. And I've got to tell you, Rob, there's no more beautiful place in Lake Louise to go alpine skiing. You know, to know, and I've seen her race, Katrina LeMay Doan, how good is she? Yeah. You know, she held that world record, 37-22, I think it was, at 500 meters for seven, eight years, the fastest woman in the world on ice. Incredible. Yeah. No, Calgary to me is Canada's first city of sport. It really is. And it's, it's Canada's Olympic city. More than Montreal, more than Vancouver, Calgary's our Olympic city. Well, I, I, I thank you for that. That's very kind of you. Uh, I'll accept on behalf of Calgary. How about we do that? <laughs> um, so the tradition on this program, we end off with this. I stole it directly from uh, Pat Monahan from Train. He had a podcast, and I love this question. He asked all kinds of musical guests, and I think it applies here. I'm looking for your hidden Calgary gem, and I want to leave it open-ended. You can answer it any way you like, but when you come to Calgary, what's that Scott Russell hidden Calgary gem? You know, I listened to your podcast with George Canyon. Yes. And I thought it was fantastic. And I, I cool. love the I love the way that George answered this. Yeah. And I'm gonna give you so I've thought about it. Oh good, 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 good. I'm perfect. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two gems. Oh perfect. And and they are somewhat hidden and in particular, you know, they might not be hidden to Calgary people completely, mm -hmm. but they are certainly a little bit hidden for the rest of Canadians, and I would urge all Canadians to uncover these two gems. The first one is the Grand Hall at Canada Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, it is a beautiful facility, a shrine to sport in our country, and not enough people get a chance to visit it. Uh, the history of sport in our country is beautifully displayed. Cheryl Bernard, who is the president and CEO of Canada Sports Hall of Fame, is doing a wonderful job, and what a beautiful place that is. I just love going in there at the Grand Hall and looking around at the characters who have been so important to the folklore of our country. That's my first hidden gem. My second hidden gem, and I will even give you a timeline on this one, is go out early in the morning on a summer's day when there is nobody in the grandstand at the International Ring at Spruce Meadows, Alberta. And <laughs> I almost get choked up thinking about it. It is to me, the most beautiful stadium of sport in our country. Wow. It is a national treasure. Those people, the Southerns, yeah. have, have given an incredible jewel to this country. And uh, I love 
Spruce Meadows. I can't tell you how much fun this was. Um, I'm, I know we've crossed paths in the past, and I know we've chatted probably on the radio in the past, but this was so much fun, Scott. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time. I really appreciate this. Rob, I loved spending this time with you, and uh, all the best, and stay safe through all of this. How freaking cool was that, kids? I told you. No, yeah, he's the first guy we've really interviewed from outside of Calgary. But come on. Right there then, tell me that this guy doesn't have a, a good pulse on our city. And how about his hidden gems? Gems, plural there. Pretty cool. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you did too. Um, again, want to throw some things out there to get you thinking. Want to throw some things that, out there that, that maybe challenge you a little bit. I'm not sure where we all sit uh, on the Olympics and the Olympic Games. And, of course, we went through this uh, a couple years ago in Calgary, so probably, a st- you know, for some, still a little raw. But I do like engaging in those kinds of conversations. And, uh, boy, it was a lot of fun to, to spend some time with Scott Russell. Um, looking forward to some other conversations we got coming up for you. All kinds of different people from all kinds of different walks uh, of sport here in Calgary, um, and and they're going to be good. Listen, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, Let them know about it. Um, There's lots available. If you go to Sport Calgary, just go to the podcast section. If you've just joined us, they're they're long and fun and really intended to promote sport in our city and the people who, uh, who make it so special. Glad you enjoyed it. Glad you could join us. Come back for more. We'd love to have you. This has been an original Six Feet Conversation podcast right here at Sport Calgary.